Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. Well, sorry we were late. We left and we thought there was plenty of time, but there was an accident and then the traffic was uh, backed up. Uh, what I have found often is uh, when I'm speaking somewhere, they can start without me, but they rarely finish without me. So... <laughs> We're glad to uh, be here so you could finish. But, uh, we, we thought we had lots of time, but obviously not. So we're in Second Corinthians chapter 2. And in this section, uh, Paul explains a lot of what he was feeling and uh, thinking in terms of the situation in Corinth. And so he had written uh, to them, and he explains that in chapter uh, two, that he wrote a letter. That's a letter we don't have. Uh, he wrote a letter in between these letters. And uh, they were obviously, as he explains later in the book, they received it uh, well, but he didn't really know what was going to happen. He didn't know how they were going to uh, react. And I was thinking, as I was reading this and thinking again of the situation in Corinth, you think of, uh, I can't imagine a local church like the church at Corinth. I mean, None of us would want to be there if we were in a, a place like that. Uh, there was divisions. We know that in 1 Corinthians. One said, well, I like this guy. Peter is preaching. I like what Paul has to say. And, uh, you know, Paulus. And so there was divisions between them. So obviously uh, there wasn't one mind. There wasn't unity in the assembly. Uh, all that was going on. Uh, there now, in chapter 6, it would seem that there was some conflict and some believers were going to court against other uh, believers. And so you had that uh, going on. Chapter 5, you had this condition where this man was living with his uh, stepmother, his father's uh, second wife, uh, living in sin uh, with her. You had that going on. Uh, you had people uh, trying to exercise the more visible and vocal gifts, thinking that they wanted to be prominent and preeminent in, in that way. And so when you think of all that went on there, it's, it's a wonder Paul ever went back. Uh, the wonder he ever expresses what he did uh, for those, those people. You can hardly imagine uh, a local church like this. When you contrast that to the church at Thessalonica, uh, which in many ways was a model church. Paul commends them for their testimony and the gospel going out and their love for each other and all those things. Uh, so if you and I were, were picking and choosing, we'd probably end up in Thessalonica and avoid Corinth altogether. Uh, but Paul here expresses his love and concern uh, for these believers. And it's an amazing thing. And as I uh, just meditated on this and thought through this passage. Uh, it, it tells us a lot about Paul's heart, uh, but it's convicting as well. Uh, how would, the part of the, the problem or the issue was how some people were viewing Paul himself, how he was being talked about or his message being uh, received. And so that was part of the, you know, the issue. It wasn't just that these things were going on, but some people were saying, well, you know, Paul's nothing and he's not eloquent and uh, not to worry about him when he comes. He, you know, he says these things, but don't worry about him when he's not here. And so it was very personal as well. And yet Paul expresses in this passage his love and concern for them in a way that's, I think, very convicting. 
uh, you know, generally, as our lives have become more insular, uh, you know, we're so spread out, uh, we can avoid a lot of these types of things. Uh, you don't have to see each other except once or twice a week. Uh, but there they were in a community together and they saw each other in the marketplace and so on. Uh, you know, as we've spread out, uh, we can avoid a lot of these, uh, these, these things. And of course, uh, the more sort of united you are in, in viewpoints, the less of those conflicts there are going to be. But Paul's in the center of it and he expresses uh, his deep love for these, these people. And obviously, all of them loved him in the same way, but he loved them. So we'll read uh, several readings from chapter 2. We'll start in verse 3. And I wrote this very thing to you, so he's referring to a previous letter, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. And I was thinking of that section in terms of uh, how affectionate and how emotionally he displays his care and concern uh, for these people. Now, part of it, the background is he, he delayed his visit, as we saw when we looked at his at conscience. He delayed his visit because he wasn't sure how they were going to respond. And so he'd sent them the second letter uh, to get their attention. He explains later on that it caused sorrow, but it led to uh, repentance, a godly sorrow. So he was ultimately happy with that. But he really didn't know what the outcome was going to be. But he expresses at the end of what we read there, the end of verse 4, you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Isn't that amazing? Um, Again, put yourself in Paul's shoes in that situation. Uh, We might write uh, something, we might email something now, or text or Twitter or whatever, but uh, would we write something like this to those we're in conflict with? I want you to know how abundantly I love you. Um, it just, it really, to me, was convicting uh, to think of that. So he's being maligned, uh, ridiculed, and yet, as he writes, he expresses, I've loved you, and I want you to know how abundantly I love you. And so it's, it's obviously more than just uh, just a word. It's, it's the expression of. Now, love, of course, is a, is a choice. Uh, you know, there was a book by that title, uh, was it Gary Smalley wrote, love is, a, love is a Choice. And that's true. Uh, I can't determine or control how you respond or how you feel. I can only control myself, what comes from me. And so love, love is a choice. But it's not just an analytical thing. It's really an emotional response. It's a choice, but there's got to be an emotion in it. Uh, I can say I love you, but there's got to be some, some sense of, of that. It's not just the word. And Paul is, is writing, talking about uh, you know, the fact he doesn't want to see them grieved. He wants to share his joy with, with them. And he wants to demonstrate his abundant uh, love uh, to them. So it's not just a correction. It's not complacency, but it's real care and concern for them. And so we see that emphasized right through the New Testament, this whole idea of the 
importance of, of love, the demonstration uh, of love. So if you turn, just keep your finger there, but turn to Colossians chapter 2. I don't know if we looked at this verse before, but this should really be the hallmark of every local assembly. This is what assembly life should be about. Maybe every assembly should have this verse over their door. Colossians 2 verse 2, this is Paul's concern for the saints there. He says that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of Christ, both of the Father and of Christ. Uh, what he's saying is, as we come together, it should be a place where we're encouraged. Uh, there's so much to discourage. You know, Mike was praying about what this world is, is like. There's so much to discourage out there. When we come together, we need to be encouraged. I remember a fellow I knew, uh, he would sometimes preach, and he was very harsh and hard. And uh, another fellow said to me once as he was leaving, he says, well, whenever I hear him, I go home beat up. Well, that's the last thing you want. You get beat up in the world. You have discouragement in the world. You don't want to come together as believers and feel like you've been pummeled and beat up. You want to be encouraged. But knit together in love. I mean, that should be the hallmark of assembly life where people feel the sense that, yes, you're welcome here. You're loved here. We want you uh, here. Uh, how would you feel if you'd been gone five weeks and nobody missed you? You know? We were gone two years. You missed us, right? Well, a little bit. So there's that sense where you, we should have that atmosphere where people know that they're loved. And then he goes on to about teaching. They've got to be taught as well. But we want that to be the hallmark of assembly life. And then go to chapter 3 of Colossians. And in this passage, in the first four verses... Paul outlines our position in Christ, and then he comes to the practical aspects of it. What do we, what do, we do about it? And uh, in verse 5, we're to put to death these things. Verse 8, to get rid of these things. Then in verse, uh, verse 12, we're to put on some things. And you get to verse 14, he says, But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. It's been, uh, some commentators look at this as the belt that holds everything else together. You put on all these other things that he mentions, tender mercies, kindness, meekness, long-suffering, and you put on love to, to tie it all together. And so that should characterize us. So he's writing to a, an assembly. He says these are the things that, that really matter. Look over at 1 John 4. 1 John 4. Three times we're exhorted here about love. So in verse, in verse 7, he talks about the fact that we've been loved. So, beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So we ought to love one another because we have been, we have been uh, loved. We have the opportunity because we've been loved. But in verse 11, it's, it's, we have the, the obligation Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so we ought to do it. And then in verse uh, 21, this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And so tremendous emphasis, and I think there's a progression there. We have an opportunity in verse 7, we have an obligation in verse 11, and then in verse 21, it's a matter of obedience. Uh, if we love him, 
we're going to love one another. And so that's a, as they say, sometimes a difficult uh, thing to do, but it, it should be the defining mark of what a local church is. I remember reading in uh, history uh, a report, somebody was commissioned by a Caesar to report on these Christians, and they came back and told about their love for each other. That was one of their, their things that stood out, the hallmark of their life was that they, they had love uh, for each other. And so that should, that should mark us as well, that type of love. These people weren't lovable necessarily, but also they want you to know the abundant love I have for you. Now you people are lovable, and so we should uh, be easy to show uh, abundant love uh, to, to each other. And so that's important. Now let's read on from 2 Corinthians 2, verse 5 down to verse 11. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one will be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him, for to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you're obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forget. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, we're not ignorant of his devices. Now as you read that, it's a bit of a tongue twister in, in some ways. There's obviously a background here. Uh, some would feel the background is from 1 Corinthians 5, that that man who was caught in sin and judged by the assembly, disciplined, handed over to Satan that he might learn uh, not to live that lifestyle. Uh, some feel that now he has repented and it's time to extend forgiveness to him. Other commentators feel that perhaps there's another situation which involved uh, what Paul was experiencing and being maligned and somebody had done something uh, to the extreme and had to be disciplined for what they had done. But uh, regardless of the background, uh, Paul is now dealing with the finished product. Now Mike's busy writing a three-part article on, on church discipline, uh, so when you read that you'll get the fuller uh, picture. But uh, what Paul is saying is, okay, that, that worked. What you did, did worked. Now, uh, discipline, of course, is, is a multi, you know, very splendid thing type of, of issue. Uh, there's all sorts of things. There's various types of discipline, whether a brother should be silenced or whether somebody should be excluded from fellowship or all those types of things. It depends on, of course, what is going on, whether there's repentance or whether a sin is continuing. And I'm sure in our lifetime we've all experienced issues and situations where people have done things and been unrepentant and had to be dealt with for the sake of the testimony of the uh, assembly. But here's one where it would seem that whatever they did in terms of discipline, the person has repented and now they've been slow to, to respond to that. They've not done anything about it. And the purpose of discipline is always repentance. It's to to bring one back. It's not to punish, but it's to bring one uh, back. If it was punishment, uh, we'd all have trouble. But it's to bring us 
person to repentance and so bring them back into the fellowship. Now let me just say too that in that regard, uh, repentance and restoration doesn't equal trust. Uh, Trust is something that's earned, but repentance and restoration to fellowship is something that's granted. Um, You know, when somebody does something that, that violates trust, they have to earn that trust back. We are to forgive, but trust is a separate issue. I, we knew of an assembly where a man was in prison for a very serious crime. Uh, his father-in-law was in that meeting, and the man got out, and within a month he was the treasurer. Well, half the people left the meeting. Uh, there was no trust, obviously. Here's a guy that's been in for a very serious crime, and now you're putting him in charge of the, of the finances. Well, people couldn't handle that. Trust has to be earned. But if he, if he is repentant, yes, he can be restored. So that's what Paul is saying here. It's time, it's time to do that. But in here, he also, I think, uh, pinpoints a, an issue that's so important to us, and that is about forgiveness. And so he talks about reaffirming their love to him. And in doing that, extending forgiveness. And so I want to just think a few minutes of the importance of of forgiveness in the Christian life and experience. It's so vital. Um, You know, Scripture so often talks about uh, forgiveness. Uh, Ephesians 4.31, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, uh, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And so... You think of how far many of us have come, and God in Christ has forgiven us. Colossians 3.13 says, Bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. And so, when you think, if the Lord didn't forgive me, where would I be? Even in the Christian life, he held it against me. You know, Psalm 132, Lord, if you were to mark iniquities, who would stand? Well, there's forgiveness with the Lord, and we can be so thankful uh, for that. There's forgiveness with the Lord. If he were to charge us with what we've done, we wouldn't be here. He's not rewarded us according to our iniquities, Psalm 103 says. So uh, forgiveness is a a vital aspect of, of Christian life. And what has destroyed testimonies in so many places is a lack of forgiveness, the inability of people to let things go. Now, when I, when I forgive, it has nothing to do with your response. Forgiveness is between me and the Lord. Trust is between you and me. But forgiveness is what I extend. I release it. I give it to the Lord. And if we can't do that, the result is often bitterness. And in Hebrews, Hebrews 12 or 13, the root of bitterness springs up and destroys, defiles many. Bitterness is a terrible, terrible thing. And when it takes hold, then it is destructive. And so uh, it's so vital to forgive, to release, to hand it over. Uh, there was a story about Clara Booth, you know, the daughter of the founder of the Salvation Army. Uh, Some woman did something terrible to her at one time. And uh, that woman came back into her life and a friend of Clara Booth said, don't you remember uh, what she did to you? And Clara Booth said, I distinctly remember forgiving her. 
That's a wonderful response, isn't it? Distinctly remember forgiving her. Corey Ten Boom tells a story of the, the guard who was the most vicious against her and her sister in the concentration camp. And she was speaking, actually, I think on forgiveness somewhere. And that man happened to be in the audience and had got saved in the meantime. And she said it took all that was in her to reach out her hand. But once she uttered the words, forgiveness, forgiven, it just released all that. I don't know if you saw the program, the newscast yesterday at man Vincent Simon. Been 44 years in a prison in Texas for a crime that he claims he hasn't, hasn't done, didn't do. Uh, he got released. He showed him coming to court with his Bible and uh, being released after 44 years. And uh, the reporter asked him, you know, do you have any bad feelings about those that accuse you? He said, no, I've forgiven them. It was a wonderful response, not to have the bitterness, just to release it and to let it, let it go. And so forgiveness is so, so important uh, because it breeds bitterness. But there's a, ver- there's a thought here too in verse 11, lest Satan take advantage of you. Now, there's a number of statements in the New Testament that are uh, somewhat similar in, in thought or idea. Lest Satan take advantage of you. Well, what's the context? How could he possibly take advantage? What advantage could I give him? Well, obviously, a lack of forgiveness, a lack of the demonstration of love in some way gives Satan an advantage. Uh, an illustration I use when I think of this or it comes to mind is, I, I, I don't know if any of you ever watch a hockey game, but uh, in hockey, uh, they play with a puck and uh, they're on skates. And uh, if, you, if the defenseman gets the puck behind his own net, usually nobody chases him because he can skate faster at the other way. So he's got to pass the puck. And all of the coaches in the world will tell you, go up the boards, shoot it up the boards because it's safe. You've got players up there. If the other team intercepts it, they're far from the net. But always, and I've probably been guilty of this at least once, maybe twice or more, <laughs> you see one of your teammates up the ice and you think, well, I can just shoot it up the middle of the ice. But what happens is if the other team intercepts it, there's nobody between them and your goalie. You've just given them a clear shot. So I think that's the idea here. It's not that Satan's going to win every time, but when a lack of forgiveness is there, a lack of love, it's like giving him a free shot, saying, here you are. He's got something to work with. And so if you think through the New Testament, there are other passages like this. For instance, uh, in your anger, do not sin, nor let the sun go down upon your anger. Uh, um, for, uh, let me, getting old. Uh, not to let the sun go down in your anger, nor give place to the devil. So in my anger, I could give place to the devil. That's a possibility. So he can use that again to his advantage and destroy testimony. Uh, Both Peter and James say uh, God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And then Peter talks about Satan goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And again, in the context, it would be that uh, pride gives him the advantage. When I'm self-sufficient, when I tell God I can do it my way, that gives him a distinct 
advantage. And there are a number of other passages like that in the New Testament that tell us that my actions, even as a believer, can in, enhance or enable Satan to have an advantage. So pride and anger and a lack of forgiveness, a lack of love, he can have an advantage. And what does Satan want to do? For We'll find out in, in a couple of chapters, he blinds the eyes of unbelievers, but he wants to destroy the testimony of believers. That's what he wants to do. Divide local churches and destroy testimony. That's his goal. And if he can do that, he's won. So why would I give him the advantage? You know, when the Lord Jesus died on the cross, Hebrews tells us, he, by death he destroyed him that had the power of death. Now the word destroy means to make inoperative. He took the power that he once had away from him. But he's still here. And Paul mentions him a number of times in 2 Corinthians, perhaps five different times in 2 Corinthians. He's still active, uh, still working. And we can give him an advantage. We can give a place to him. And pride allows him that type of advantage. Now, it's interesting, in Scripture, uh, several men killed lions. But two men were killed by lions. And so in 1 Kings 13 and in 1 Kings 20, two men were killed by lions. And specifically, in both of those occasions, it says, you would be killed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord. Disobedience to God's word gave the lion the victory. And so it is. Satan goes around as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so if we give place to him, if we give him the advantage, uh, he's going to use that. And testimonies are going to be destroyed. So... It's so important to forgive. I don't know if you've heard Gaither's song. It says, I then shall live as one who's been forgiven. I'll walk with joy to know my debts are paid. I, my, I know my name is clear before my father. I am his child and I am not afraid. I so greatly pardoned, I'll forgive my brother. The law of love I gladly will obey. You know, you can be... Glad I didn't sing it to you, but it's, uh, they're good words uh, to, to think about, that, uh, the importance of, of forgiveness. Okay, let's look on at the end of uh, chapter 2. And as we read this, what Paul seems to have in mind is a Roman victory parade. And so when a Roman general won a battle, there would be a parade in Rome, uh, was there a parade in Los Angeles, or there will be because of some football game? That did take place, didn't it? <laughs> I think so. So you have that sort of victory parade. So a Roman general went a battle, uh, they'd have a victory parade. When Titus destroyed Jerusalem in that victory parade were the articles from the temple. So the, the altar and the laver and all those things were in the parade. As well, there would be... Uh, those who were shackled and chained, and they'd be coming along, and they were marked for imprisonment or death. But in there, too, there would be priests with incense. And so uh, to some in the crowd, that was the smell of victory. But to those who were chained and shackled, that was the aroma of death to them. They, they weren't enjoying the victory. They knew where they were headed, and it was to imprisonment or death. So 
That's what he uh, has in view in the last part of chapter 2. But let's read from verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I did not find Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are God, the fragrance... We are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity. But as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Chapter 3, do we... Again, or begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And Paul here talks about the investment he wants to make or is making in the lives of these, these people. And that's, that's so vital in life. When you think of, at the end of life, what really matters? What counts at the end of, of life? I mean, our, you know, our, we've obviously traveled quite a bit and brought back some knickknacks from here and there, and our kids have already let us know that they're not interested in anything that, that we have. It means nothing... Uh, to them, garage sale material, um, you know, uh, brings back memories for us, but for them it's, it's nothing. And so those things don't matter. What about the, your home, your car, all those things? They're all left behind, right? Everything is left behind. Uh, it's said that uh, when Alexander the Great died and was carried through the streets on a, a beer, on a, you know, a coffin, it said he wanted his hands held up empty so that everybody could see he took nothing with him. I don't know why he insisted on that, but it was a vivid picture. Uh, Cecil Rhodes uh, was a very wealthy man. Two countries were named after him, Southern Rhodesia, Northern Rhodesia. The Rhodes Scholarship is named after him. Uh, the De Beer Mining Company is a result of his uh, investment. Uh, he said that at the end of life, he said, you know, I've gained much in Africa of land, of diamonds, of wealth. But he says, I've not planned for the future, therefore I have nothing. You know, you'd look at a life like that and say, well, what a success. At the end of life, nothing. So what we have at the end of life really is what we invest in others. That's, that's the investment that counts, is what we pour into the life of others. And so that's what Paul is expressing here, that we touch the lives of others. Uh, to some, he says, we're the aroma of life unto life. That is, as we minister to other Christians. But as we live and walk in this world and have a testimony for Christ, to some we become the aroma of death unto death. They will uh, see our life and, and recognize, yes, there's something about that person. Uh, but to them, it's, there's nothing sweet or, or savory about that. It's the aroma of death unto death. But this whole idea of investment then, and that's what Paul is talking here about the, 
the epistle written on their hearts. It's not what's written in page, but what's written in their hearts. And so it's so vital that we use opportunities. Now, most of us in life don't have you know, a classroom where we can sit people down and teach them day after day. It's short interactions. And the Lord brings people into our life maybe for a short period uh, of time, maybe for a few minutes for a conversation. But it's what we do in those moments when the Lord opens the door, like Paul says here, uh, do we pour something into their life? Are we looking to encourage, to build up, to, to implant something uh, in their, their life? I think uh, when you do that, you may not know till heaven that you've had an impact. You know, Luke 16, 9, uh, the Lord Jesus talks about using our money. He says, when it fails, we'll have friends who will receive us into everlasting habitations. And the idea is we use our money for the Lord's work and and somebody gets saved, there'll be people in heaven, uh, probably people in heaven from Liberia, who will say, oh, you're from Claremont. You supported the Richards. And out of their work and effort, I got saved. And they'll come up to you in heaven and thank you for giving to the Lord. Nothing you ever knew about on earth. You don't know where it went or how it was used, but eternity will reveal that. And so it's so important to look for opportunities to invest in the lives of others. And we can do that by being encouraging. Now, Paul talks about not using duplicity in the gospel, being straight, upright, having a good testimony. But it's so important to, to view people as uh, and, and interaction as opportunities from the Lord. How can I build up? How can I encourage others in the Lord? And you know, uh, as I look back in my life, often it has just been conversations. Maybe at a conference, you're sitting beside somebody, and you just have that opportunity to interact in some way. And, uh, and the Lord uses those. Sometimes it's over a longer period of, of time. But it's got to be really a mindset. And that was Paul's mindset, that I want to invest in people. And he says, what I've done is now written on your heart. It's not a in a book, but he says, you know in your heart that I've invested in you. Now, obviously, as we get older, uh, our opportunities change. When our kids were small, uh, we had far more opportunities in our neighborhood because we met everybody. Uh, You meet people in all the activities you do. Uh, Later in life, it's much harder to meet people and have those opportunities, but we can pray. We can pray for what Paul says here, an open door of opportunity. The Lord will lead us to, uh, to someone uh, to minister to. Interestingly enough, today we had conversations. We're just sitting at the pool and uh, two different conversations. Both fellows turned out to be believers. Uh, one from Michigan. I think there are Christians from Michigan. And uh, one from Illinois. And uh, just through conversation, uh, you know, you start talking about the things of the Lord and we were encouraged by it, and I hope they were encouraged by it. But you use the, the opportunities the Lord, uh, the Lord provides. Now, I just want to go over to chapter 13 just for another uh, thought from, from here. Again, about investing and, and concern for others. So 2 Corinthians 13, verse 7. Now I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, that we may be 
may seem disqualified, for we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. In this also we pray that you may be made complete. Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. And so you see his concern for these, these people, how uh, sensitive he was to their situation and how he wanted them uh, to, to respond. And uh, he wanted them to be complete at the end of verse, uh, verse 9. That usually is, has the idea of maturity, to go on to what the Lord wants us uh, to be. And then he talks about edification and not for destruction. Uh, it's a terrible thing to, to undermine the work of the Lord. And so we need to be so, so careful. You know, in 1 Corinthians 3.17, the Lord talks about the local assembly, and he calls it a temple. In chapter 6, he calls our body a temple, but in chapter 3, it's a local assembly. And he says, if anybody destroys the, that temple, God says, I will destroy him. So God, God holds a, a local testimony as a high, high view. Remember, book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ walks in the midst of the seven churches and he says to each one, I know your works. He's watching. He knows what's going on. And so it's so important that we give ourselves to that which edifies, that builds up, that encourages, and not be those that destroy. That would be a terrible thing to, to look back on life and think that well, I ruined this place or I destroyed this. You want to build up. You want to pour into. And so that's what Paul's concern was. What am I pouring into the lives of others? And so I trust that uh, we think about these things. To me, it was very challenging to think of his love for these people and the importance of expressing that love in his terms uh, through forgiveness, but then investing in the lives of others and being for edification, for the building up of others. That's what the Christian life is all about. Uh, there's a Bible camp in Ontario called Joy Bible Camp. And uh, back in perhaps 1948 when they started, they didn't have a name for it. And the man who was starting the camp, a full-time worker by the name of Bill Belch, asked people to suggest a name. And the suggestion was Joy. And with that name came the acronym Jesus first, other second, yourself last. And so that's why they chose the name Joy Bible Camp. And so that's a good, good little thing to remember. The Christian life really is about others. The world says, no, it's all about you. Scripture says, no, it's all about others. And Paul exemplified that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We think of how challenging this is. We think of what these people were like. Uh, what Paul experienced, what he went through, uh, the difficulties, difficulties he faced in life, and yet his concern, uh, and more than just concern, his love for these, these people, uh, both individually and collectively for the assembly, and his uh, desire to pour himself into their, their lives, to build them up and to see them go on to maturity. And so, Father, uh, we just thank you for this example and for the exhortation that comes with it. And we pray that we might live this out in our lives. Uh, you've not asked us to do something that's impossible. You've asked us to do something 
that's uh, unique uh, to the Christian life. And so, Father, pray that we would uh, just experience this and live it out day by day. Again, we commit ourselves to you as we separate. Take us home in safety, for we pray in the Savior's name. Amen.